Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deviation Approved Podcast. Today, we are talking with Carrie McCauley. Carrie is a former ferry pilot and the author of the book, Ferry Pilot, Nine Lives Over the North Atlantic. And um, I had the opportunity to read this book a few weeks ago, and it is amazing. And I absolutely want to have Carrie on the podcast. So uh, please join me in welcoming Carrie McCauley. Welcome to the podcast, Carrie. How are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Is the is spring starting to show up in where you are? Well, it's trying. It was uh, really nice last week and now it's cold again, but it's yeah. coming. <laughs> We're neighbors. I mean, in Iowa, kind of same thing. We, we call that the fool's spring, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Everyone gets excited and, and then it, it kind of turns again on us. Um, I just finished reading your book, Fairy Pilot, and I, uh, I had it in my backpack. I pulled it out on a plane and two, two hours later, I, the plane was landing and I was like, holy crap, this, this book grabs you. Um, when did your book come out? I published it last July, July 2020. Okay. Did you self-publish this? I did. Yeah, okay. I did, it, did it all myself with uh, my wife's help. She, uh, she did all the editing and pointed out all my spelling mistakes, which was <laughs> a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not an English I, major, but uh, yeah, I, I didn't read it that closely, but uh, did a nice job. I, I'm I'm really happy that you were able to get your story out. It's a it's a very interesting story, and I understand you're going to have an audio book out soon as well. Um, we're going to link to the book and and you know leave your information in the show notes so people can find you. Um, before we get into the book, I mean, this basically reads like an NTSB report of. <laughs> you know, like, like hazardous attitudes and things like that. So um, I, I think we'll, we'll kind of start with the disclaimer of these are not things you should be doing, right? Yeah, this is not a how-to manual. You're not supposed to go out and try and re- recreate these incidents. These are uh, a cautionary tale. Yeah. So, so you're saying assessments should not be flying through thunderstorms. Not unless you can help it. Most of the okay. time, you should you should be able to avoid a thunderstorm. Yeah, yeah, man, yeah. That's I, this whole book was just like it, it again. It, it's a case study and and what not to do. It and I I'm very thankful that you're sharing this because again, you know, we don't as pilots we don't like to talk about our screw ups and um, you know this is honestly the best way to learn. So again, thanks for that, and I'm glad you were able to publish this. I want to start with your solo flights um, and not quite your first solo, but we kind of the first solo where no one's really watching, right? Like I, I don't know if it's common, but I know on my first like flight to the practice area, there's a bunch of screwing up or screwing around that you want to do and you want to get that out of your system. So maybe more pilots can relate to that, but I didn't quite do what you did. What what did you do on this particular solo flight? And kind of give us the setting. How old were you? Where were you flight training? It was in a 152, correct? Yeah. Uh, I was probably about 24, 23 years old. I was doing flight training out of uh, Crystal Airport, just north of Minneapolis. And I'd, I'd been cleared to solo and stay in the stay in the pattern, but my instructor wasn't there that day. So I decided to sneak off to the practice area and ring it out as there were, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I started off kind of like you did, you know, you said, just uh, do some steep banks and some stalls and, you know, some stuff, just kind of play around with the plane. And I decided, you know, I'm going to try a, you know, the, the zero G maneuver, you know, the floaty thing. <laughs> 
push up, push it over the top real aggressively and, you know, have a pen float in the air off your hand or something. Uh, but I was a little too aggressive with it. Maybe not too aggressive, but I, I didn't have my seatbelt tight. You know, because I remember this is back in the early 80s when we just barely started wearing seatbelts in cars. You know, I grew mm -hmm. up not wearing seatbelts in cars. It just wasn't a thing. So, and if you did wear it, it was about as loose as you could make it. So when I started flying, I always had my seatbelt on, but not yeah. tight. Didn't realize, you know, airplanes are not cars. And <laughs> different stuff happens in an airplane. So I found well, out. That's probably just the lap belt, too, at that, right? Yeah, yeah. There was no, yeah. There was no shoulder harness. So. Yeah, when uh, zero G hit and I pushed over the top, I literally fell into the instrument panel and along with everything else, and I couldn't recover for a few seconds. I had to push push my, you know, because I was held up against, against the yoke, so I had to push myself back into the seat, tighten my seatbelt, and then recover from the dive I'd put myself in. So, Yikes. Learned a thing there. Seatbelts are there for a reason in airplanes. Yeah, yeah, and, and probably like, solo endorsements don't include zero g pushovers for a reason <laughs> <laughs> but but i but i could do it you know <laughs> right so and, and that gets us right kind of to the core in, in this running narrative you use in the book and it, it's actually something i've been using in the podcast it is the two buckets i think you call them two bags where um what, what, when you talk about that and how, how did you first learn about that analogy well i learned about the analogy of uh, the luck bags from my uncle's Uncle Kerry, who I'm named after, he was a naval aviator, flew S2 trackers off uh, in the Navy for years. And basically, it's like this, you know, when a pilot starts his flying career, he's got two bags, a luck bag and an experience bag. And when he starts out, his luck bag is full and his experience bag is empty. And every time you do something stupid or you just get lucky, you take a little bit out of the luck bag and put it in the experience bag. And the trick is to get the experience bag full before the luck bag runs out. And luckily, I've had a really, really deep luck bag. Yeah. <laughs> My experience bag is pretty full now, too. So there's that. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so you recovered the plane, you landed uneventfully, I'm guessing. Yep. What, what was kind of going through your mind at that point of like, you, you just did this stupid thing that was kind of cool very stupid you got away with it yeah i like you say got away with it and i just kind of learned a lesson from that you know i've i've in my whole life i've kind of put myself in intentionally difficult and dangerous situations and trying to learn from them and so this was just kind of like on par with the course like okay lesson learned seat belts tight um, yeah. But again, I also was kind of proud of myself. You know, I was like, all right, mm -hmm. I didn't panic. I, I got myself into the situation and got myself out. So, you know, it, it, may, it might not have helped my aviation career. Uh, I do have a problem <laughs> being a little cocky in a lot of in a lot of instances. And there's been times before and after that incident that got me in trouble and still might every now and then. So I have a tendency not to really learn those lessons that well. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But at least you're putting them out there for us to, to be like, oh, maybe that that's not a good idea because the, the, the perspective of reading someone else to it is always better than you finding out yourself. Um, so how, how did the rest of your uh, pilot training go after that? It went really well. Um, I went through it pretty quick. I even had a couple instances on my my final solo cross country. 
I uh, got first got a little lost because one of my VORs stopped working. So I had to cross tune VORs with single VOR. And that was kind of a, a challenge. And I figured that out. And when I came into land, my flaps, I put flaps down and they just kept deploying and, you know, extending and, and retracting automatically, you know, down, oh. up, down, up. So I, I like, oh my God, you know, I, I can't use flaps. So I put flaps up and had to do a no flap landing. But again, I, I gotten, I'd done enough stuff that I just, Got to the point where, well, here's another challenge. I just got to figure mm -hmm. it out and deal with it. And I can do this and landed with it. Sir. It worked out pretty good. So you, you get your license and um, one of your friends talked you into skydiving. Take some skydiving lessons. How, how did you feel about doing that? I mean, I, I imagine, I mean, just to preface this, it seems like you do, you, you like doing exciting activities. So you, you get into skydiving. Yeah. How was the, how was um, the first, first jump out of there? It was awesome. Uh, I had just come back from uh, air assault school. I was in the National Guard at the time. So Army Air Assault School is where you learn how to repel out of helicopters, you know, 100 feet in the air. And that was, that was pretty exciting. You know, I was an Army helicopter crew chief at the time. I was flying in Hueys a lot. And then repelling out of the helicopters was pretty scary because that's heights, you know, you're hundred feet above the ground. Like, Holy cow, this is your way up there. Yeah. And then when I went skydiving, it was almost easier because of that. I wasn't scared. I was just excited, you know, and, and it, I always knew I was going to skydive. It's just kind of one of the things, you know, growing up, I knew I was going to be a scuba diver, skydiver, skier, pilot. I just, that was just on the list of things, not really a bucket list, just, expected list you know one of the next things that i was going to do so when i started skydiving it was like all right cool i'm home i love this i love the atmosphere i love the people i just loved everything about it it was so foreign to anything else i'd done that i just couldn't get enough yeah you you talk about a incident in the book pretty early on about a man whose parachute failed to deploy or or, or he he released the parachute what exactly happened there and how did that affect your ongoing love of skydiving yeah he was a first jump student and at about a hundred feet or so he caught a little turbulence and he maybe had a partial you know maybe a tiny bit of his parachute collapsed and he panicked a little bit and cut away to go to his reserve and he's way too low i mean you're not supposed to do that below two thousand feet 1500 oh, wow. at the lowest a hundred feet is definitely way too low for that and you know he impacted without his reserve shootout at all and i was one of the first on the scene and immediately started doing cpr on him um and he didn't make it but it didn't really affect my thoughts on skydiving at all except that if you know you know it's an unforgiving sport just like skiing in the woods or flying or mm -hmm. riding motorcycles you know if you, you you can't make stupid mistakes because it'll bite you yeah I, I think in some cases it's probably easier to get over that because there's a very clear mistake that was made it, it wasn't a case of oh man he did everything right and then this still happened or, or it was a fluke accident yeah and i've i've run into that all the time in my in my career in my adventure career as it were you know, when people do really stupid things, 
that doesn't scare me from doing my sport. You know, I was like, well, that was dumb. You know, I won't do that. I mean, everybody thinks that, especially young men, like mm-hmm. that it's the other guy that's going to make the stupid fatal mistake. Not me. You know, I'm way too good for that. But as you get more and more exposure to that, you, you actually see trends. You see people, you know, new guys coming in. It's like, yeah, well, I saw that coming a mile away. He was really cocky and wouldn't listen to anybody. Kind of like somebody else I know. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to go there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, um, as you gain more experience, you learn not to do dumb stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you live to survive it, right? Um, so, I mean, speaking yeah. of kind of fluke accidents and then not much later, um, you, you talked your wife into skydiving with you. You want to talk about that experience? Yeah. That's. Yeah. Well, you know, she, I'd been skydiving quite a bit and she decided that she wanted to do it too. And, you know, she's a real adventurous gal and on hers. She was doing great in her training, but on her seventh jump, she made a mistake in her flight pattern and landed in the trees. And in the process of us trying to get her down, she climbed out of her harness because she wasn't going to wait around for for rescue. She was a pretty self-determined girl. And unfortunately, she fell as she was climbing out of the trees and hit her head and didn't survive that. So that was uh, that was pretty traumatic. Um for everyone involved, but uh, I know she would have wanted everything to continue on. You know, you can't just stop doing stuff. Right. So how how old were you when you doubled my efforts? I was twenty-seven, probably twenty-eight, okay. maybe something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. So that's not an age at, at which you expect loved ones to die that's yeah no no that was uh that was pretty tough yeah um how, how did you get back into back into the air was there did you kind of make a conscious drive to know i i gotta get over this was there any fear at all of skydiving after that or or or, or, or was it no just... no and you know the skydiving community has to deal with this I won't say on a regular basis, but it happens. And we all just go get right back into the air. That's just what skydivers do a Mm -hmm. lot of times the same day. You know, we're just like, we're going to, we're going to jump again. We're not going to let this stop us because it's what we do and who we are. And all of us know that if we're the ones that go in, we would, we would not want our friends to stop jumping. We would want them to keep going. I mean, the, the, what everyone wants when they die at skydiver anyway, whether it's from skydiving or just old age is what we call an ash dive. They, your friends take your ashes on one last skydive and release it into the air mm-hmm. because skydiving is just a way of life and who we are. And that's where we want to end, want to end up. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's a great way to put that. Um, I mean, at, at some point you end up flying for this skydive outfit. So you presume they're, you're trying to build hours. Um, at that point, were you just looking to build hours or did you already kind of have a goal in mind on why you were building hours? Well, originally I was shooting for the airlines, you know, like, like most young pilots, you know, I figure mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm going to build a bunch of hours, get hired on the airlines and be an airline pilot. And things were kind of going that way, but 
you know, two things happened that kind of derailed that. Number one was flying skydivers, and number two was then ferry flying. Um, both both those types of flying are really on the cowboy end of the spectrum. And you're, you know, it's not a suit and tie. You're not, you're not wearing epaulets. You're not wearing slacks. You're wearing t-shirts and shorts and sandals and you're flying beat up stuff. And it was just such a loose and fun atmosphere. I couldn't get enough of it. I mean, I love flying skydivers. Dropping meat bombs is a blast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's challenging. You're, you're having a good time and it's, you're all stick and rudder stuff. It's, you know, it's like kind of like bush flying, like barnstorming. You just uh, really kind of loose and loose and free. And yeah. what really appealed to me. Um, I want to ask you a controversial question. So one of the uh, shock cooling. Okay. So, so you have people that say shock cooling is not a thing because skydive pilots are shock cooling their engines, you know, 10 times a day. And then there's people that are super careful about, you know, throttling down a little bit and, and, you know, having their top of the scent 30 miles out. So what, uh, what is the skydiver pilot's perspective on shock? Especially now you now run a skydiving operation. So you're financially vested in the life of those engines. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts? It's a little bit of both. Um, Yeah. I've, I've talked to some mechanics that completely don't believe it at all. And I'm more in that thing because like you look at what shock cooling is, it's the rapid cooling of your engine. And when I'm, when I'm flying skydivers at the top, at the top, when I just let them off my mom went way down, I, I throttle the engine back about halfway. And I usually shoot for about one degree a second of cooling. Now at the okay. top is a little more, but when you shut your engine down at, at, on the ground, it cools down way faster than that. And also okay. think what happens when you fly into heavy rain, you know, all that water going into the mm-hmm. engine doesn't just immediately explode all your cylinders. The cylinders are a lot more resilient than you think. Now, that being said, you know, I've owned four, five skydive airplanes now, um, thousands of hours flying jumpers, and I've only had a handful of cylinders crack. We're relatively careful, but we come down literally as fast as we can, right on the edge of you know, of red line when it's smooth, uh, top of the yellow arc when it's rough at all, and we really don't have any problems with it. You know, yeah. cylinder heads close. I mean, yeah, if I went to full idle and dove it straight at the ground, I we might have some damage, but we're we just kind of take care of it that way. But I think for the most part, in general, normal operations, you don't have anything to worry about. You couldn't, you couldn't damage your airplane if you tried, unless you went to 12,000 feet, went from full, full power, hot as the engine could to mm-hmm. totally idle and dove it straight at the ground in the wintertime. That's the yeah. only time you're going to damage an engine, in my opinion. Well, and, and cylinders crack for various reasons too, right? Yeah. Heat but, is the day. Heat is the killer. That's what we yeah. as skydive pilots you, you got to keep the engine cool because that's what'll destroy your engine. We've had engine problems, pilots not doing a good job, and you can actually see the cylinders, you know, not make it 500 hours because some guy mm-hmm. forgot to open the cowl flaps on a, on a climb out and cook yeah. the engine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th- thanks for, for that little detour here. Um, so you, you end up, I mean, I, I don't want to read the whole book out here, but You've had some interesting experience flying skydivers as well. Um, 
but skydive planes are single engine and and again for the airlines you know they or, or even fairing they, they want to see some multi-engine time so how did you go about solving the problem of gaining multi-engine time on a limited budget yeah well basically my my good friend of my um, that I grew up with, Lee Wolfgram, who we both joined the Army together, became Huey Crew Chiefs together. He was along the same route. He wanted to be an airline pilot, too. And we had another pilot, you know, that was in the National Guard. We, the three of us decided to buy a twin, a light twin, bought a twin Comanche. And our plan was fly the heck out of that thing, you know, build up, get our, we got our multi-engine rating in it, and each get a couple hundred hours and then sell it. Mm -hmm. hopefully that's the cheapest way to get some multi-engine time and now there we are all good to go ready ready to get that airline job so <laughs> what could possibly go wrong right yeah well let's let's talk about that so it's was it uh it, you guys were all home for christmas break or, or you had some other friends that were back for christmas break you know pick up the story from there yeah well lee and our other pilot john um had got accepted to the army helicopter school so they were down in fort rucker alabama learning how to fly helicopters and i went down christmas and picked them up and flew them back home for the christmas break and then we were going to head back down to take them back to fort rucker and the day we came to leave a uh, big snowstorm hit minneapolis area and we had another pilot who's joined with us he was uh, another helicopter candidate and he had a multi-engine instrument rating. And but when we decided who got to sit where, you got four pilots. Who gets to sit up front? Well, I got to sit up front on the way, both ways down. So it was my turn to have to sit in the back. And the other guy, it wasn't his plane, so he had to sit in the back. So Lee and John, who didn't have any kind of license at all, sat up front. Lee mm -hmm. did have his multi-engine rating at the time, but not an instrument rating. And so we took off and we're trying to get around this snowstorm to get head south to Alabama. And it just wasn't working. You know, the clouds kept getting lower and lower and the visibility was lower and lower. It was starting to get stupid, stupider. It was stupid. Yeah. In the first, yeah hold first on. So let's pause there. You, you took off into a snowstorm yep. um, with the plan to just VFR scud run and, until you presumably got out of the weather system, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah, it was okay. it was technically VFR when we took off, you know, but as we got further and further, you know, we're trying to get ahead of the snowstorm, get it, get around it and get out of it. But it just it kept get the ceilings kept getting lower and lower. The visibility was worse. And we finally decided, you know, this is getting pretty dumb. Maybe we should land, get mm -hmm. the guy with the instrument rating up front, file IFR and get out of here because we're getting to the point where we're probably going to get ourselves killed. So we uh, found the nearest airport, which is Toma, Wisconsin. Nice 5,000 foot runway, non-towered. Found it in the snow. It was covered with snow, but uh, we, we managed to find it. The lights are still working and set up to land. And, you know, I'm, I've got my backseat pilot's license. So I was over yeah. the shoulders <laughs> watching. And that particular is that a second or third in command rating? I have yeah, something like that. <laughs> third, third in command. And the problem we had with that twin Comanche, it had a, little, a unique thing was the, uh, the the heater didn't work every whenever you brought the gear up, and we never could figure out why that was. So it was pretty cold in the plane. So right after takeoff, I'd taken my seatbelt off and covered myself in blankets, and I was kind of watching over Lee's shoulder, and he was flying. And as a point, at one point, he finally got set up on final. Like, okay, good, you're 
you're all set. I don't need to watch him anymore. And I kind of sat back down. And as we came into land, I'm sitting in the back of the plane and looking out the side window like, wow, it's really weird sitting in the back. I've never sat in the back of the plane as it landing. It seems like a really nose high attitude. You know, this is kind of unusual. I almost feel like he's going to hit the tail first. But obviously you can't do that in twin Comanche. That's madness. And then the tail hit. I'm like, whoa. And what was happening is Lee had been flying nothing but helicopters for six months. And just out of instinct and practice, he tried to hover a twin Comanche. And oh. if you look through the manual, it definitely says it's not a helicopter. You can't hover a twin Comanche. So he hit the tail. It pitched up. It bounced a second time. And I screamed power over his shoulder. And he jammed the throttles forward. And the plane uh, torque rolled immediately. You know, like yeah. maybe the right engine caught just a little bit more. And it healed up 45 degrees instantaneously and 45 degrees off the runway. And it was the weirdest thing because right then when that happened, time stopped for me. It was just like the Matrix. You know, it's like everything just froze. I could see everything clear as a bell. I knew exactly what was going to happen. It's like, okay. Our left wing tip's going to catch that snow drift right there. We're going to cartwheel over the ditch next to the runway. Cartwheel, continue to cartwheel across this short field here into those trees. And I'm not even wearing my seatbelt. We're yeah. dead. <laughs> and I put my hands like this, and then time kind of started again. It was one of those, you know, adrenaline-fueled things. People say, you know, the accident happened in slow motion, and that's what happened. And right then, Lee chopped the power, got the wings level. We hit the snowbank level, thank God. Skipped over the ditch, did three 360s on her belly through the field, and came to a stop without anybody being hurt. Which was wow. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. So, needless to say, you guys didn't make it to um, Fort Rucker, right? That's where you guys were going? <laughs> Correct, yeah. And, and, and like the initial push to do this was that you know they, they would be considered AWOL if you if you didn't make that flight so that's that that's kind of the get the right is to to accept this flight what what ended up happening to them I, I was hoping you'd talk about that in the book did they get disciplinary action or, or if you call in and say hey I've had an airplane crash they're like oh okay you're you're good yeah well being for you know they're in helicopter school everyone down there all their whole chain of commander pilots and so when they called in with a really good excuse, like an airplane crash, yeah. uh, they were forgiven. <laughs> like, okay, okay. <laughs> Noted. They just want, their commanding officer just wanted to hear about the crash. Like, that's cool. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit better excuse than a flat tire or your dog. Getting right. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So they were okay. Oh, man. Well, you got your, your twin engine time in at that time. So I'm guessing that airplane was a write-off. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was trash. And you through some other tragedy you ended up getting a job as a um new ferry pilot and you get your I, i'm not going to talk about how you specifically got the job which is also very interesting but you got your first job uh flying a duchess across the north atlantic how uh how, how did you feel when you first got the assignment and, and, and how did that change as you actually fully comprehended what all this entailed well i was pretty excited when i got hired on with orient air uh, i'd really been trying to get on with them for quite a while when i got hired and it was pretty exciting and kind of scary that the first thing they said was so great you ready to 
fly a fly a plane to Portugal. Like, wow, okay. Thought it'd be an easy one, maybe down to Florida to start off with, but nope, right across the pond. So that first trip was was pretty interesting. You know, I was going to be completely alone in the cockpit, which was kind of surprising. I would have thought they would have had somebody in the plane with me, but yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> but nope, they figured let's just go for it. Now I did have my boss with me. He was going to be ferrying another plane to Switzerland, so he'd be with me the whole way, but only sort of with me. You know, he'd be in the same sky, but yeah, I, I was alone. Yeah. So so Pete, your boss. Yep. Um, how how would you describe his personality for, for those who haven't read the book yet? Yeah, he's he's a pretty unique individual. He's a second generation Greek guy, and he's just very loud and opinionated. And he's he tells you exactly what he thinks, and usually he thinks you're an idiot, and he'll tell you exactly, uh, which yeah. is kind of nice. You know, you always know where you stood with Pete, and uh, I I loved him to death. He you know he. If he liked you, he would do any, he would do anything for you. You know, he took pretty mm -hmm. good care of me. For some reason, I didn't rub him the wrong way too much. So, he was he was pretty fun to fly with. So, it's your first flight. This is you know basically your your first job interview, and um, somehow you ended up delaying the whole operation because it was really cold. What uh, what happened? Yeah, the first takeoff from St. John's, we. We'd been delayed getting out of Portland, Maine for some maintenance issues on another plane. So we got into St. John's really late and figured there's no sense of going to the airport or the hotel. So we slept in the FBO. Then the next morning we got up and it was really cold. This is just before New Year's and super cold in St. John's, Newfoundland. And it took a while to get the planes. There's only one preheater. For, there was three of us. And uh, another pilot was with us, Jim. He got his plane started first. Then they started my Duchess. And then they're working on getting Pete's plane preheated. And the thing with the multi, the, you know, twin engine planes, they get their heat from a janitorial heater in the nose. And you're not supposed to use those on the ground. But it was taking a really long time to get Pete's plane started. So I was freezing my buns off. And I figured, you know, I could probably turn this heater on just for a minute before it overheats and, uh, you know, get some relief. So that's what I did but I was completely wrong on how long you can run those heaters on the ground because I blew the overheat, overheat uh, circuit breaker and it got cold. <laughs> so you're sitting there, this is your first, I and mean, this is probably one of your better decisions in this book. You're sitting there, you're like, well, I just blew my heater. We're already running late. My boss really wants to get out of here. Do I tell him that I broke my heater and I don't have a heater for a North Atlantic winter flight like how how long did it take you to to decide whether or not you were going to fly without a heater or not hey you know that that was probably one of the hardest decisions i've had to make in my aviation career because here i am on my very first trip with my brand new boss who is not by nature a really nice guy he's loud and he's a loud and yelly guy and he gets mad really easy and <laughs> i and we, we've spent all morning busting our butt trying to get these planes off and we're ready to go. And I'm, and I, and I made the mistake. It wasn't that something broke in my plane. I broke it. And now I've got to tell them, I got to tell them I broke it and I don't want to go until we fix it. And it was pretty scary to key the mic on that one, but it was the right thing to do. It would have been really, yeah. really horrible doing that. Yeah. That, so 
you guess take off, you get it fixed, take off, more delays. Um, they use a 15 minute spacing for small airplanes crossing the Atlantic. So Pete took off first, your boss, the guy who's done this many times. You're just sitting there by yourself waiting and you take off. One of the things you talk about is um, with a very heavy plane like that and, and the CG being a bit off, you guys hold off with retracting the gear because that does that shift the aerodynamic force or, or what was the concern there exactly? Yeah, that's one of the things that Pete had told me about when he was training is, you know, with when we put ferry tanks in the plane, that plane had ferry tanks in it. We're allowed uh, 25 to 30 percent over max gross. And back then we were allowed two inches of CG, and this plane was all of that. And he said that, you know, when you a lot of times when you retract these planes, retract the gear in these planes, it does shift the CG just a little bit. And like you say, the center of pressure or the aerodynamics on it. And he, he saw a guy at, at St. John's in a light twin, just like the one I was flying, bring the gear up too early and stall it and roll over and crash. So he's telling me to be, be really careful. Um, big thing with, with a plane that's overloaded like that is just to fly it fly it smooth, you know, no abrupt control inputs and keep your speed up. Don't be in a hurry to climb. If you're, if you're get, going up 50 feet a minute, that's sometimes that's all you're going to get. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I just thought that was interesting. It's one of those things you wouldn't think about. Um, so you guys take off, you're flying. I mean, incredible experience in and of itself flying across North Atlantic in a small plane like that. But at some point, Pete calls you because he has a problem and it, it's a pretty big problem. Yeah, I was, you know, having a great day. It was, you know, it was beautiful, beautiful, sunny day, you know, smooth skies. Uh, plane was running great. I'm figuring this is this ferry flying stuff is easy. You know, <laughs> what was I scared about? Yeah. Pete called me about halfway and he'd lost his vacuum pump. And that was kind of scary to him because the second half of our trip, wasn't supposed to be sunny. It was supposed to be really bad weather, low clouds, high winds, heavy rain, and at night because we're heading eastbound. So the day is shorter anyway because you're going against the sun. And plus, it was just before New Year's, so middle of winter. And he wasn't really looking forward to spending a few hours flying with uh, needle ball airspeed because, of course, he hadn't practiced it ever. Yeah. <laughs> um so you guys are and that's after a long flight as well so you you guys decide that pete's going to fly formation off your wing um so he's basically circling around this island to let you catch up because that 15 minute spacing um he poorly formation flies off your wing for a bit and it seems like you guys figure it out there was a perfectly good airport that you guys could have landed at why why didn't you guys land there that because wasn't there like a VFR airport and then you guys opted to continue to the IFR airport? Yeah, well, the the island, the first island in the Azores changed that chain that he met me at has an airport on it, but it has no services. There's no FBO. There's no there's no hotels in the island. There's nothing. It's just a runway. And I was suggested to Pete, it's like, hey, why don't we land there and you know fly 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 the next leg tomorrow the next day in the daytime when maybe the weather's a little better but he wasn't interested he didn't want to do that he 
didn't feel like sleeping in a plane. And Pete is a lot like me in a lot respect, a lot of respects, <laughs> or maybe I'm like him that has a lot of uh, go for it in him. And he's like, you know, let's just do it and we'll figure it out. It'll be okay. And so, yeah, we formed up and flew instead of landing at a beautiful, nice VFR open airport. We did night IFR formation flying with uh, navigating by NDB. So, cause why not? Sure. Yeah. Why not? I mean, <laughs> where else are you going to go? Right. Wow. Why take the safe way out? That would be stupid. Yeah. So I'm not even going to finish that story just because it's, I, I want people to buy the book and, and get in there themselves. So you, you get to deliver your plane, then you fly with Pete to Zurich and fly through a snowstorm over the Alps, which is also, I mean, you're going to talk about how that was a good idea. <laughs> well, it wasn't, you know, flying through the snowstorm wasn't bad. It wasn't icing, you know, it was, um, at least icing wasn't forecast. We weren't having a problem with that. Um, you know, it was kind of a... <laughs> Kind of interesting. We were flying up an airway and Zurich called to say, okay, you know, we want you to intersect this radial off the Zurich VOR when you and then track that inbound. And I was a co-pilot at this point. We'd already delivered my plane, so I was sitting next to Pete. So I was like a good co-pilot. I spun my VOR over and the needle swung all the way to the left. And and he goes, Holy crap, we passed it. And he, cranks the plane into a hard right bank to, to go back to the intersection. Like, no, no, we haven't passed it yet. That's two from, you know, have, <laughs> I mean, everybody has the argument on the two from right, left, knee yeah. reflection. He just got momentarily confused. And, and uh, so we're having a little argument about whether we were there or not. That's when Zerk calls and said, what are you doing? You're, you haven't got to the intersection yet. Get back there. So he turns back, but he turns back the other way. So he does a hard oh, right no. turn, then a hard left turn. So now we're a couple miles off the airway. And that wasn't a really good idea when you're at night over the Alps. You kind of want to stay on the safe route that they've got planned for you or plotted there. Because I had the, uh, watching the radar altimeter and all of a sudden it twitched a couple times and went whoop. Looked like we flew right over a mountain because it bottomed out at about 100 feet or so. And uh, yeah, it's like, holy crap, Pete, we just flew over a mountain. That's climb and get back on the airway so yeah oh man good times good times yeah so there's there's a massive deposit of luck into the experience bucket right there yeah for sure um there, there's so many good stories in this book so um having flown a bonanza i i was i was excited for you when you got to fly was it a f-33 bonanza across the ocean yeah yeah, and it seems like you were pretty feeling pretty good about that too, until uh, you developed a little fuel problem. Yeah, yeah, we'd I'd flown. I picked that actually picked the plane up right at the factory, which was super cool, brand new airplane. And you know we had ferry tanks in that one, and I got to St. John's and looked at the winds aloft, and they were just cooking straight across the Atlantic, right to Paris. And I did some calculation, and realized you know if I leave right now basically which that night i can make it all the way to paris in one go it's 2500 miles that's a long way but mm -hmm. you know with the strong winds aloft and that would save me having to fly down to the azores spend the night there and then back up to paris so i'd save 
save the company all the money of the fuel going down and back to the Azores, save hotel, uh, meals, taxi. You know, I'd save the company a lot of money. The fact that I was going to get an extra full day of partying in Paris had nothing to do with my decision, I swear. You know? Oh, that's just incidental, yeah. <laughs> Furthest thing from my mind. Uh, <laughs> that part was so on the book, hours, but it all makes sense now. <laughs> four hours into the flight, though, I uh, turned on the ferry tank to move some of the fuel from the ferry tanks out to the wing tanks, and the fuel wasn't moving. And that was kind of a kind of a big deal because... I only had maybe a half hour, 45 minutes left in the wing tanks, which was not nearly enough to get anywhere. I couldn't go back to Canada. I was four hours away from Canada and I was still a long way from even Ireland, let alone Paris. So I was literally right in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean with 45 minutes with the fuel left. So I had to figure what, out a way to, to move that fuel. What is the normal, um, is it just gravity feed or, or is there a pump involved normally? Well, most of the ferry tanks don't gravity feed very well. Um, what we do is we, we run a, an airline, a high pressure line from the top of the ferry tank down through the belly of the airplane. And at the end of the line, we have a little metal J tube and point that into the slipstream. And that's what pressurizes the tank. Typically, we'll either drill a hole in the belly of the tank and put a, you know, put a nut and a washer on the end of that J tube and fix it in place or drill a hole in the an access panel. Now, seeing this is a brand new plane, Pete didn't want to drill a hole in a new $400,000 airplane. So, and they didn't have an access cover with a hole in it. So they basically stuck the J tube sideways through that hole and duct taped it in place and screwed it in real tight, which I wasn't really happy about, but both Pete and the mechanic said it would hold. So <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> kind of a dumb move, but you know, and, and yeah. it did work for two days. You know, it worked great from St. St. Paul to Bangor, Maine, and worked from Bangor to St. John. So I was figuring, ah, oh, okay, well. I mean, that's kind of a lot of what we do in, in ferry flying is there's a lot of duct tape involved and a lot of jury rigging stuff, you know, figuring it out. I mean, that's just kind of par for the course. You just make it make it work somehow. None of this stuff is factory. Yeah, and, and you hope it breaks while you're over land, not literally in the middle of the ocean. Right, right. Well, I made a huge mistake, you know, and, and it was brought on by the kill, the biggest killer in aviation, that's complacency. I used that ferry system twice successfully, so I figured, oh, it's good to go. Mm -hmm. What I should have done is probably while I still had enough gas in the wings to get back to Canada, I should have tested it, but I didn't. You know, I just, I just took off and like, ah, done this a bunch of times, I got it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was going to ask why you waited so long until draining the fuel out. I, I would imagine if you have that much aft CG, you'd want to get rid of that fuel pretty quickly. Well, two reasons. Number one, you can't, you literally can't start using the ferry fluid, fuel right away because it feeds into the wing tanks. And when the wing tanks are full, you'll just pump all the excess fuel out the vents. So sure. you have to wait till the tanks get low enough. But the other reason is, FCG is good once you're in cruise. You know, the plane flies faster and more efficiently when you have more FCG. So it's good to wait for for a while. I mean, at, yeah. at a certain point, it becomes too much. But uh, yeah, that's right because your just, your horizontal stabilizer is pretty.
producing less lift and less induced drag, right? That's correct. Yeah. yeah um, so, okay. So, so, I mean, you, you find out that you have all this fuel that's not usable. So, so you're like your unusable fuels, like a ton. <laughs> um, at what point are you? So, so you're probably thinking plan A, B and C. What are, what are your options here? Well, I didn't really have many. Uh, the only thing the guys had ever told me about what to do in the situation when your fairy tank doesn't fairy tank won't won't feed is, you know, number one, make sure you've got the valves set correctly because that's killed a lot of guys. Um, fairy fairy tanks are notorious for being problematic. Uh, so I made sure the valve was right. I you know put the plane through a lot of gyrations to see if maybe something had gotten blocked in there. I wasn't very hopeful, but you know, worth the shot. Uh, the only other thing the guys have told me that is that you can descend down to sea level, open the top of the ferry, ferry tank to equalize the sea level air pressure, then seal it up, climb up to altitude, and with the reduced air pressure up there, the, the high pressure in the tank will force the fuel out, kind of like how a bag of chips will expand when you climb. Sure. But I couldn't do that because I had to stay in the the winds aloft up at 15,000 feet to make it, even if I didn't have a ferry tank problem. And I kind of thought about the whole procedure, you know, descending at night down over the, you know, I at IFR down to sea level, which I don't have a current altimeter setting for, you know, and then cap the tack off and climb back up to 15,000 feet. And how many times am I going to have to do that all night? I, I don't think I had the fuel for it. And also it sounded kind of scary. So. I didn't want to do that. Okay. So, so I sat so there and looked at left that hose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that just didn't sound like a fun procedure for, for eight hours, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I had to find a way to pressurize it. So you look at the hose, you look at the tools you have on board. How? Uh... Yeah. And I figured, well, you know, if I can blow up an air mattress, maybe I can blow up a ferry tank. So I just, <laughs> literally stuck the i took the hose apart i always fly with tools in the plane and there was a there was a fitting uh halfway you know on the hose and i disconnected that and just stuck it in my mouth and started blowing and after a few minutes it got hard to blow as the pressure built up the tank and i capped it off and lo and behold some fuel flowed you know like awesome you <laughs> know i figured it out you know i had my apollo 11 moment and i was able to come up with a solution. What, but then what was I your did cruising the, altitude again? I was at 15,000 feet. Okay. And so, so you got all no, this excess of oxygen to breathe, right? <laughs> right. Well, the <laughs> thing is I've got back then for sure, but even now I've got a pretty high, high altitude tolerance. Um, I, I fly all the time. I skydive all the time. I do physical activity. You know, we go to 14,000 feet when we jump and I do tandems you know, I'll strike big big guys onto my belly move around the plane so i'm at altitude quite a bit um so but if you're flying at high altitude as long as you sit really still i'm pretty good if you have to move around a bunch that's when you start getting lightheaded and hypoxic so i started blowing to that tank and that's pretty much the opposite of sitting still and not doing anything <laughs> yeah so i was immediately pretty stoned so what what kind of fuel flow are you getting with this? And 
Um, are, are you kind of able to do the math to figure out whether or not this is sustainable or, or are you just blindly going into this? Well, I did the math, but it took a while because like I said, I was pretty hypoxic. Um, but when I finally figured it out, I realized I was going to have to pretty much continuously blow in that hose all the way to Paris because it wasn't, it wasn't moving very fast. And you remember when I started blowing, there was a small airspace because the tanks were, were full mm-hmm. as I continued to go along that airspace get bigger and bigger. And I had to blow more and more to increase the pressure to move that fuel. So it was pretty, it was pretty tough. That was the longest night of my life. It was exhausting and I was <laughs> pretty out of it. And you're, you're looking at um, possibly landing in Ireland, but that uh, was the airport closed or, or what was going on there that was it just super low IFR? The airport was actually closed. Um, it was below minimums and pretty much down to zero, zero. Now my, now my route took me uh, just south of Ireland, which is the southernmost point of the British Isles. I mean, I was only maybe 50 miles up. My route was 50 miles off the coast of Ireland. But, you know, as I got closer, I talked to, you know, ATC and they said you know, all the airports in southern Ireland are I have, you know, really low IFR, if not closed. And I was so out of it. I figured, you know, I could declare an emergency. I mean, they have to let me shoot the approach, but I didn't think I was in any shape to shoot an approach, a zero, zero approach. You know, that just probably was beyond my skill level at that point in time. So, yeah, I elected to keep going to Paris. I heard the parties are better in Paris anyway. Right. Um, So you... You assume it was going to be about 27 times to pressurize the tank. How, how, how many times did you end up having to pressurize the tank or, or did you even, were you able to keep track? Oh, I, I lost track almost immediately. It was just, it just turned into one long night of blowing into that tank, trying to keep the, the wing tanks filled. You know, the, the biggest thing that was scared me the most was the possibility of running the wing tanks dry if I passed out. And mm-hmm. cause I didn't figure if that happened, I wouldn't be able to pressurize the tanks fast enough to get the engine running before I hit the water. So I pretty much just continued to blow in that hose all night until I finally got close enough to Paris to, to make it. Yikes. So you're one of the thing. So you mentioned you had cheese whiz and Ritz crackers as your meal of champions. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Maybe you could have used the propellant and the whiz, the cheese whiz, the pressure is the tank a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, that might have got me. uh, Maybe a little five minutes. Yeah, a little puff. Yeah, probably not. Get some cheese in your field too. Yeah. Um, I mean, being that we're speaking here, you somehow made it to that as well. Um, would you say that was probably the hardest flight of your career, or? How does that rank, having to physically blow your fuel into the tanks for hours on end? I would say physically that was the hardest one. You know, there's some some other, you know, incidences were just just as difficult to figure out, more mentally challenging. But that one physically for sure was the hardest because I couldn't just sit there and do nothing. You know, I was working hard and... At, at high altitude, that really takes it out of you. I was pretty exhausted by the time I got to Paris. Yeah. 
there's there's so many stories in this book um you know anyone who's even remotely interested in flying i i can't recommend it enough i again i was i was reading this on a commercial flight and i don't usually read books anymore i, I usually listen to them but yeah i just blew through this just with my jaw dropped the whole time um you, you have incredible stories going across Africa at treetop level to avoid being extort extorted by the government, flying through thunderstorms, I'd say almost routinely, even though you didn't do it that much. Um, just all this stuff that as just a vanilla pilot, I would be terrified of you are, you're doing and surviving it and you just end up in these situations. Um, I want to talk kind of towards the end you're kind of coming to terms with like, this is kind of stupid. Like how, how long was that in the making? I, I believe the arrow star is kind of where that started. Um, you got this sweet fairy job at arrow star and you're flying it to some owners that probably shouldn't be flying an arrow star. You want to, you want to pick up the story from there? Sure. Yeah. I got the, Fly Piper Aerostar, which was just an awesome airplane. I mean, it's the fastest piston twin ever built. And, you know, turbocharged, pressurized, fully de-iced, you know, what a rocket ship and maneuverable. Super fun to fly. I picked up one of the owners. I was taking it from Arizona to Cyprus, and I picked up one of the owners in London. And we flew to Zurich to uh, get some fuel. And the forecast out of Zurich was for icing over the Alps. Not heavy, you know, light to moderate icing. Um, and we only had to get over, the, you know, we weren't going really far because, you know, get up to 19,000 feet, get over the top of the Alps, and then it was descend down to the Mediterranean and be out of it. And we took off and starts picking up a little bit of ice. No big deal. I'm in this fully capable fully de-iced airplane. I was feeling pretty cocky, hit the boots and the ice flakes off and nice satisfying chunks like cool. <laughs> and I love this. Yeah. Love a yeah. love a plane, you know, hot props, hot windshield. I was digging it. I mean, I love, I love a challenge like that, especially when you have the tools for it. But then the speed started to get slow and the climb light started to drop. And what I think was happening was there's, Ice was building up on some unprotected part of the airplane, probably on the tail, because the tail started getting a little loose and sloppy. And it was pretty close thing, getting up to 19,000 feet. Actually came up just a little short. You know, it's 19,000 foot minimum crossing altitude, so they give you a 1,000 foot buffer. But yeah, I needed the buffer that, that night or that afternoon. So you, you make it. You um, Did you... Did you end up being the CFI for these guys to fly this plane or, or were they getting some additional training too? Well, I was pretty much the first CFI. I got, you know, we got to Cyprus and I had, they'd, they'd got me a, a, a jump seat on an airliner to Heathrow that at the next afternoon. And so I had just the morning to get four guys checked out in this plane as much as I could. They had another CFI that was going to pick up after I left off, but he didn't have any Aerostar time either. No one did. Okay. It's a pretty unusual airplane. Yeah. And so I was checking these guys out, but, and this plane was way too much for these guys. They were, I mean, it's a hot rod and they didn't have much experience to, at all, let alone in twins. So 
I did what I could, but they were pretty scared of it. I, I hope they lived. I never yeah. found out. <laughs> never heard of it crashing. So that's a good start. Um, so you 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 got a jump seat uh, flying an Airbus back, and you kind of got to see what the airline life was about. What, what were your impressions? Yeah, well, you know, it started off really cool. You know, this is before 9-11, so I got to sit right in, you know, in between the two pilots and, you know, brand new Airbus. It was like being on the space shuttle for a launch. You know, lots of lights and buttons and switches and knobs, which I think is cool. And they pushed every one of them and uh, neat. <laughs> get up to the runway and the co-pilot's flying. He, you know, goes to full power and pushes you back in the seat. That was awesome. And, you know, the, the climb angle after takeoff was pretty steep. And I was just like, yeah, this is cool. And the co-pilot hit about 500 feet and engaged the autopilot, let go. And, and that was it. <laughs> they didn't touch the controls again till, till final. And, uh, you know, we sat and chatted and, you know, talked to the, talked to the captain. He was also a skydiver. And after a while I said, you know, this, this is kind of boring. You mind if I go in the back and drink beer with the stewardesses for a little bit? Oh, sure. Go ahead. <laughs> Came back when we were done and watched him shoot the approach and they did co-pilot didn't touch the controls till short final plunked it down. And, and that was the extent of his, of the flying for that one. And I was like, you know, I don't know if that's really what I want to do for a living. It doesn't, <laughs> it looked really boring. Yeah. So were, were you, so before that, were you still kind of thinking, well, I have all these ferry hours. I, I can probably make a good airline candidate. Was that still a part of your plan? Yeah, it was. Um, I figured yeah, I was going to fly skydivers and ferry fly for a while, but it's not really a long-term life career, you know, it's just airline pilot. That's where the money is stability, you know, retirement, that whole deal. But I need, I need adventure in my life. I need challenge. I, when I, when I saw literally just how boring airline flying was, I thought, I don't know if I could do that for the rest of my life. Um, so that, you know, after that flight, I, I was in serious doubt whether I could do that and stay sane. Yeah. But you also didn't see ferry flying as a viable future because at this one you have a family and, you know, you're, you're probably, you're 36. So you're kind of out of your 20s and you're starting to realize that maybe you're not invincible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the problem I was coming up against with the dangers of ferry flying was, I, like you mentioned, I had a wife and kids at the time, you know, I'm, I'm no longer a single guy. I mean, it's one thing for a single guy to go out and risk your life for, for adventure. You know, if you get killed, your mom will be sad, but after that's pretty much the extent of your responsibility. Uh, but once I was a, a family man, it was just too selfish of me to risk my life like that just because I wanted to have a fun job. So I thought it was time to, kind of lay off the ferry flying for a while and make sure I was there for my kids. So I decided to gravitate toward the, a safer career, you know, professional skydiving. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you've certainly lived nine lives just ferry flying here. Um, and, 
Yeah. Again, like I said at the beginning, I, I'm, I'm thankful for you sharing these experiences because they're not always flattering and they, they kind of, you know, show the lack of judgment we have sometimes and, and, you know, sleeping in an airplane sucks and, and, you know, the amount of risk someone's willing to take to just not sleep in an airplane in hindsight, it doesn't make sense. Like, oh, I should just slept in a damn airplane, but yeah, I, it's a very interesting book. And, and I think, you know, the kind of stories that are in here, you know, you can just, you should have like a bingo companion card of like, which has this attitude is going on here. And then you can <laughs> check off the box. Maybe they can be a PDF. Um, normally at this point in the podcast, I ask people about, I, I explained the kind of two bucket system of luck and experience. And, and, you know, if you're willing to share an event and, I mean, th this whole book is just that question being answered. So I'm not going to do that. But if you had to share something from all the flying you've done and all these different aircraft types, what are a few things that, you know, normal pilots with less experience can and should be doing just to make their flight a little bit better or, or a little bit safer? What is something that you keep coming back to um, with your experience to, to ensure a better outcome? Well, I definitely think that most pilots should try to learn as much as they can from other pilots. And by that, I mean, read every incident report you can get your hands on, uh, books like mine, um, even, you know, even books on World War II or Vietnam fighters, you know, learn how they get into and out of trouble. That's how you can let the, their experience, you know, teach you you know, learn from the mistakes of others. You'll never live long enough to make them all yourself. Although God knows I've tried. Somehow you um, are, I, <laughs> you've made a lot of them. I've made a lot of them. Not necessarily, you know, a lot of them, if you look at a lot of these stories in the book, a lot of them weren't really mistakes or they're just situations that happen. Like, you know, getting lost over Africa. I, there wasn't, I didn't have any, any choice. I was never going to get a better weather forecast it was never going to be better conditions i was literally going to have to do it at some point or i wouldn't accomplish the mission but for other pilots you really have to learn i mean i love the, the articles in the flying magazines you know i learned about flying from that or there i was mm -hmm. because you never know when you're going to come across that one little nugget of information that might save your life someday i, I think it's important to start recognizing those patterns too i mean there, there's so many VFR into IMC crashes that are preceded with ATC asking, hey, are you IFR equipped and trained, right? And yeah. I was in a situation where ATC asked me that question and I was like, oh, you know what? This is probably a good time to land because I, I recognize the pattern of usually after that question, the NTSB gets involved um, yeah. if you continue going. So yeah, that's it, what, what are some books um, that have kind of that, that you've really enjoyed and, and that you would recommend to pilots. Oh boy. Um, I'm a big military aviation book fan. Uh, I just finished reading Thud Ridge, which I thought was fantastic. Baba Black Sheep about Pappy Boyington's career. Uh, <laughs> I've got a stack really high of military aviation books. So I, I think that, you know, Thud Ridge, I, I just finished. I thought that was, that was fascinating. That was some pretty okay. good stuff. Um, Phantom over Vietnam. Can I, can I tell you just a, a brief thing about my, 
my theories on scud running. If you got just yeah. a second. Yeah, please. <laughs> okay. Most guys who get who fly VFR into IMC conditions, they get in trouble because they're flying too high, not too low. I won't tell you how to, you know, yes, you should turn around when things start getting dicey. But when you've got yourself into that stupid situation, most pilots are too scared of the ground and they fly too high up by, you know, they, they're dragging their, their rotating beacon through the clouds instead of their wheels through the weeds. And what happens is the clouds get a little bit lower and boom, all of a sudden they're, they're in the clouds, even sometimes with a thousand foot ceiling. You know, what I tell guys, and this is what I do when I'm scud running, because I scud run a lot because I think it's fun, <laughs> is I fly low. I fly really low. That's where the visibility is better. You're away from the clouds. Uh, yes, you have to watch out for tires, towers, and wires, but don't accidentally fly into the clouds. Stay down low. I mean, yeah, if it's a thousand foot ceiling, you don't have to be at 50 feet, but you should be at 500 feet. Right. You know, stay away from the clouds. And then turn your butt around, get out of there. But it's the guys that they they're so afraid of the ground, they're they're dragging through the through the through the uh, base of the clouds, and then all of a sudden it gets a little low, and boop, they're in it. Now they're screwed. So. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what percentage of those accidents are because of spatial disorientation versus um, flying into something on the ground. I imagine I think a it's large a percentage. Is, yeah. Yeah, yeah I just watched this video and everybody's like, that was great. This guy was flying close to the Grand Canyon and he got inadvertent IMC. And you could see he was at, he was like 2,000 feet. It's like, well, descend, stay out of the clouds. That's the big thing. I mean, if you get, if you get forced down, I mean, yeah, it's, it's got to be pretty low. I mean, talking 100 foot ceilings to make it so you can't fit an airplane between the ground and the sky. So. Descend and turn around is my advice. Yeah. Yeah. Or so pop up and fly IFR. Right. Yeah. Or put put the lieutenant that is actually instrument rated in the front seat <laughs> of the twin, right? Exactly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, sorry, I'm, sorry for the sidetrack. Oh no, that that's fine. Um, you know, I'm I'm never gonna say no to to any kind of sidetrack here. Uh one of the I, I'd love to have Christina Olds on the podcast. Um Robin Olds' daughter, because I, I really enjoyed his autobiography as well, which she co-wrote. Have you read that one? I have. And it's funny you should mention, I can't find that book. I'm ready. I, I reread re books a lot. Yeah. And I've got it somewhere in my library. And I can't, I've been looking for it for the past two months. And like, it's, it's been, you know, 10, 15 years since I've read it. It's like, God, that's a good book too. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah I have book. it on Audible. So I just listened to it, but yeah, that I, I think it'd be really interesting to to have her on. Um, and that that man certainly has a very interesting flying career. And I, if I could get another like any guests on, I I want to find the guy, the civilian flight instructor that had to sign him off on his license so he could fly civilian planes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be be funny. Yeah. Um, well, we we talked about a lot in your book, but there's there's quite a more in there. I mean, the, the Africa adventures alone are, are, you probably could write a book just on that. Um, I'm going to put a link to the book, the audio book coming out soon for those like me that don't read. Um, is there, is there anything else that, that you wish we had talked about or, or, um, you know, anything else that, you know, open mic, whatever you want to talk about. Uh, 
No, I think we covered everything pretty well. You know, I've got a, I've got a couple more books coming out. I've got a novel about uh, Blackhawks in Afghanistan that'll be that is finished. I'm just in the editing process. I'm going to be okay. doing another book on fairy flying. I've got more more stories actually. Um, did did quite a bit more than that, and I'm also going to be doing a book on other pilots' stories because you know, we all know that one guy who's got a a really great story, but just the one, you know, not enough for a book. So yeah, I want to try and do that. So yeah, if you know, if you run into anybody who's got a really great story, send them my way and I'll, uh, maybe they'll put it in my next book. Absolutely. Um, so I, that just reminds me, we got to talk about the guy who ended up in a crevasse because <laughs> that, that that's just, that's just beyond bad luck. <laughs> do you want to yeah. tell that story before we wrap it up? Sure. Yeah, there's a ferry pilot back uh, in the '80s um, that he just seemed to he just seemed to <laughs> have all kinds of weird things happen to him. And one of them was he he had to he had to land on the Greenland ice cap. He had an engine problem. Had to go down and and back. You know the the search and rescue services in Greenland are pretty few, and it was going to take him a long time to get a helicopter to him. So he got bored and saw just wandering around the ice cap, just looking at nothing because there's nothing to see. And he fell into a crevasse. Luckily, he didn't didn't die or get injured, but he was down 30, 40 feet or something too far to get out. And so there he was stuck. And <laughs> so the helicopter finally shows up, locates his plane, and there's no pilot. I'm like, where's Jim? And the <laughs> crew chief is like, well, there's a set of footprints leaving a ways. So let's follow these. And there's a there's a pilot size hole in the in the snow bridge and look down there and sure enough there's the pilot sitting there looking back up at him and actually I I did learn a good thing from that story I and mean, that's how we learn a lot you know from the old ferry pilots and they one of the things that was going against him is he was flying in dress clothes he had dress shoes on just some nylon slacks and a light windbreaker and he was about froze to death by the by the time they found him because he was just not dressed for the conditions on the ground. He's dressed for the conditions in a warm plane and you need to be ready to go down. Yeah. Yeah. You really should be planning on camping over yeah. whatever terrain you're flying. Um, what do you do much cross country flying now? Yeah, actually tomorrow I'm flying from Minneapolis to Tampa. I'm going down to sun and fun. That'll my buddy's Mooney. That'll be a 10 hour flight. I still do the occasional ferry flight. I like to fly. My personal plane is a Beach Queen Air, which is the piston version of the King Air. And I like taking that out west skiing or down, down to Mexico fishing or to the Bahamas. I, I love cross-country flights. I, I It's one of my favorite things to do, just get in a big old plane and hit the road. Yeah. So what do you carry on your person? And, and what's your what's your kind of survival bag, equipment bag look like? Well, I've got a, a survival kit that I customize for the route that I'm going to be over, and which can be tough if I'm going to Africa because you start off flying over northern Canada, so you need that gear for that. Then North Atlantic survival, then over the Greenland ice cap, you need Arctic survival. Then you'll be down over the Sahara, so you need desert survival, finishing up with the jungles of Central Africa, so you need jungle survival gear. So it really depends. But the thing that I mostly want with me when I crash an airplane is 
the ability to stay warm. Um, a lot of people, they have their survival kits. They always have this fish hooks and fish line, fishing line. Mm-hmm. I haven't, I can't remember the last time anybody who's starved to death after a plane crash in the 2000s. Just doesn't happen. Um, you're going to need water maybe if you're down in the desert, but food is not really a big deal except to keep you warm. But, you know, I like space blankets and ability to start a fire and the ability to get rescued. You know, I carry my EPIRB with me, so I've, I can yell, yell for help. Handheld radio helps too, but uh, being able to start a fire and wrap yourself up in some kind of blanket or something, that's, that's what's going to kill you. If, you can, if rescue's two days away or even 24 hours and you're freezing to death, that's, that's the most biggest danger in my opinion. Okay, so, so we're not going on a fishing trip. No, no. The odds no. you actually fishing after an airplane crash are pretty low. In my opinion. Yeah. Bring a Snickers bar, not a fish hook. Roger that. All right, Carrie. Thank you so much for your time. Where uh, where can people follow you if they want to stay abreast with your uh, with your writing and adventures? Well, I've got uh, my my personal Facebook page, which is Carrie D. McCauley or Carrie McCauley Author. That's where I have most of my information. My Instagram is fairypilot.book, and my website is carriemccauley.com. And if you know, if any of your reader or listeners want an autographed copy of Fairy Pilot, they can get in touch with me there through my website, carriemccauley.com, and I'll send one out to you. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I uh, really enjoyed talking with you. And when you get your next book out, just let me know and we'll get you right back on here. All right. Will do. Thanks for having me. And Mr. Kerry McCauley has jumped out of the airplane and is soaring on down. Thanks for listening to this episode. Uh, the show notes are at deviationapproved.com. We're going to link to Kerry's book, his Instagram, um, and his website in there as well. Um, If you can do me a favor, wherever you're listening to this podcast, go ahead and uh, subscribe if you haven't already. Review it because somehow um, I think that that tips off people that this is a pretty cool podcast. And uh, even if you don't think it's that great, just go ahead and review it five stars. You know, no one's going to come back and say, hey, back in 2021, you reviewed a podcast five stars that really was only a three-star podcast. You know, there's no such consequences. So... Do me a favor, review, um, subscribe, and uh, let me know what you think. We'll see you next time.